Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 17th episode of 2022. And we thought that we would step back, take stock, and think about what's next now that everyone is coming back into session, the parliaments and companies, and it's back to school. So what you have done is that you have developed a little bit of a model to find out how regulation is shaped, what shapes it, what drives it, and it has a very nifty structure. Tell us about the, about the model. Yeah, so, so Nicholas, I was, in, I was invited actually to go and talk to a group in Brussels last week. I hadn't been to Brussels since before lockdown, so it's very strange, oh, but wow. I, I enjoyed it. It's nice to, to be back there. And, um, and, they, and there's a group who are sort of thinking about research areas. Uh, and, and I tried to think about, you know, what are the trends that are driving, re- driving regulation? Because if you're researching regulation, you want to be sort of in line with the, the trends that are driving it. And the structure I came up with was an ABCD structure with an ah. E on the end. With an so E on the end. With an E on the end. So, <laughs> so the ABCD are access, and that's you know, literally access to the internet, but also devices, all of, all of the things you need in order to be internet enabled. Mm-hmm. So, uh, network drivers, uh, 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 devices, all that, that bunch of stuff. B is behavior, how we behave online. I think a lot of regulation actually is about trying to regulate human behavior, what we do once we get hold of these tools. C is content. Yes. And this sometimes kind of gets aligned with behavior. I think behavior is much bigger than content. So content like what you can or can't see, what should be allowed to be distributed online. Uh, D is data, one that's been around for a long time, but I think some really interesting shifts that we'll dig into around how regulation of data is moving on. It's, it's entering, I think, a new phase. And then E, which is a kind of add-on, but I think is important, is energy. Mm. Uh, and I said, you know, if you're involved in politics at all today, energy is top of the agenda. Well, you don't even have to be involved in politics. Yeah. I just got my, my electrical bill and it was it involved me in energy policy too. So. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and well, I mean, we, we can all hope that that immediate energy crisis, you know, should be resolved at, at some point. Uh, so we just follow Elon Musk's plan for peace, which has gone down uh, like so a lead well balloon. Today. Yeah, yeah, so well today. But anyway, no, uh, you know, so, somehow or other, one can hope that there will be a resolution to the immediate energy crisis. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not going to be regulation just because you fix something. And in fact, regulation of regulatory cycles are often three, four, five years after a moment of crisis. The moment a crisis causes people to focus on something, and then over three or four years, you know, that spins up into some regulation down the line. So those are my five. Access, behavior, content, data, and energy. And I think with that, we cover a pretty broad spectrum. That's a very broad spectrum. But so we should start to dig into access. Access can be many different things, right? So access to data, access to infrastructure, access to networks. It can be lots of different things. Well, access to markets. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, what, what are the, if you think about this as a regulatory driver, you say access is a regulatory driver. What is it that makes it into a regulatory driver? Yeah. So, so the, the assumption is that um, you know people will not have access to telecom services or internet services specifically unless there's a regulatory intervention. I think the history is that that look there was a very significant regulatory intervention with the telecommunications companies in terms of. Uh, uh, models that forced them to become wholesalers, whether they liked it or not. They, it created a more competitive market for internet services with different models, but essentially there was a lot of regulatory intervention to make sure that we ended up with, you know, lots of retail internet offers being being provided to consumers over the infrastructure. 
but it didn't go much beyond that. In fact, one of the things I think here is you know, it's been a remarkable success story. There's been very little regulation, I think, of the retail offers. It's been an area of creativity where the market really has delivered. And today we have incredible internet services pretty much everywhere. There are still spots that need filling in. But the general story, certainly in Europe, is uh, the market has delivered really effectively. And I think you question whether you know further regulatory intervention would have done more. But as we've discussed in the last couple of episodes ago, you know there is now uh, still some residual sense that the market, need, that regulators need to intervene and they need to uh, sort of force some players in the market to fund others in order to develop infrastructure. So it's not a dead debate, even though I say I think you've had remarkable uh, delivery of, of access to internet services at, at a very reasonable price across much of the world. And in that case, it's access to a not yet existing infrastructure that's being debated. You know, yeah. how do we get access to the next iteration of this infrastructure that has driven economic growth and creativity, etc.? So, so access to not yet existing infrastructure is one driver. But I have to think that access to markets uh, yeah. is another one. So that's the other thing that's shifting, and I think is a again potentially a very interesting transition with the current level of regulation. That you know, we talked about this that the that the traditional notion of the internet is you plug in, you access everybody globally, there are no further regulatory barriers. And, and for much of the internet's existence, that was the case. You know, you, you've got an email server, you plug your email server in, you can email anyone everywhere, you know, so nothing gets in the way. And we've gradually put in place either infrastructure, like spam filters and authentication, or increasingly regulation that says, no, no, your access to a market is conditioned or conditional on you meeting certain criteria. And the current raft of regulation, if you look at the logic of the Online Safety Bill in the UK or the Digital Services Act, Digital Markets Act in, in Europe is, look, if people are not going to get what I would actually call you know, de facto licensed, uh, they're going to have to come and meet certain criteria in order to be present in those markets, then they're going to have to cut off access. And it's, yeah. that's like a at scale. And we've had bits of this in the past, you know, the whole Pirate Bay debate that people who are grossly infringing copyright were cut off. And, and a lot of countries have implemented measures that allow them to issue orders to their internet service providers to reduce access. But that could like accelerate actually with the logic of the current regulation. Yeah. But you could also talk about, if you want to talk about access, it seems to me to be logical to also talk about the encroachment on the internet from two very different forces. One is, as you say, the regulatory forces that re-territorialize the internet and turn it into markets where you need to have certain uh, things in place in order to access that market. That's the sort of the natural evolution of digital sovereignty uh, where access is fragmented into specific legislatory markets. Mm. But the other encroachment, of course, is commercial. We, yes. shouldn't, we shouldn't shut our uh, eyes to that, right? Yeah, and there I, I think, I mean, we can see it with um, Apple as an interesting model where Commercially, they certainly in terms of devices, they've they've really owned those devices. Now, even more so, the current trend is, you know, that they are exercising their control over those devices in order to, I think, make it so that their model, for example, of advertising, is is more attractive, and the models of advertising used by other people over those devices is less attractive. So there's like there's something going on there that control of those devices. Uh, is being exercised by a player who controls this premium segment. I actually think, if we look historically, one of the most remarkable 
uh, things, and, and, and if it hadn't happened, I think the world would be very different, was the development of Android. Uh, that Android, again, is not perfect in the sense that it's often preloaded with all the Google stuff, and you know, uh, there's, there's been court cases about that, but, but it has to, we have to sort of recognize that Android essentially has you know, meant that it's a very low barrier to entry for people with devices, new devices, and there's lots of different Android device manufacturers. You imagine a world without Android, where you have three or four people controlling 25% of the market with entirely different and incompatible systems, I think we would have ended up actually with uh, you know, a lot, you would have you know, access in one sense, but access from device to device, from, from person you know, in ecosystem A to person ecosystem B would have been much weaker, much poorer. There's some kind of cyclical thing going on here too. I remember, um, so way back when, you probably also read Jonathan Sutrain's The mm. Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. Uh, and, and the idea that um, the internet went from being uh, very siloed, vertically integrated, the AOL model, yeah. right, the American online model, to then explode. Access was provided to as many people as possible. Access was pushed to the edges of the network, if you will, so anybody could... Um, tag onto it, and that that gave the internet a quality that, if I remember correctly, he called generativity. Yes, he said it was a generative right. internet, right? And then it contracts again, and verticalization forces. And so we should ex- should we expect something new in this cycle? Because I'm thinking about Web three and about all of the discussions about decentralization that now are top of mind. They seem to be related to this trend of access. That there's something about that vision, whether it comes true or not, they're yeah. also related to a question of, of trying to get access back to the edges of the network. So access isn't determined at the core of the network. Exactly, and that's what you, you know. The, the, that's exactly where this may bump up against the regulation. So you have a trend. I think I think the internet sort of you know, inherently wants to be open. It wants to expand access. I mean, everyone's commercial interests are there aligned certainly for the internet services, in expanding access. I mean, the reason I think it was so successful is, look, all of these internet services come along and, and you know, everything in every fiber of their being says, look, the more people that can connect to the internet and the more open it is, the more business we'll do. So there's a really strong, powerful commercial logic towards openness. And I think that still prevails. Uh, and even in Web3, it's not pure. People are trying to make businesses out of it. Mm, They're yeah, trying to generate. No, no, of course. And so they all, that pushes towards openness. At the same time, you've got a regulatory trend for, for good reasons that, and we'll start to come on talk about things like people's behavior, why that's the case, that you know, if, if you have a regulatory trend towards locking down finance, that's going to be to try and prevent fraud and, and money laundering, all these kind of things. And then if you've got a technology trend towards saying, no, 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 we don't want any control. We want new forms of finance that are you know, completely uncontrollable by government. You're setting yourself up for a clash. I think there is a real tension there that's going to play out. And access is different when it is to a pre-existing network that has massive social and economic significance. And when it's to this rather sweet new thing that the internet was way back when that was fun but nobody really could figure out what it would be good for right so i think negotiating access because if you say that it's a trend driving regulation you can say okay regulation is a negotiation about access how do we negotiate access in the right way across all of these different dimensions of access infrastructure data markets all of those different things and and if it is that 
in sort of negotiation, then it is very different today, given where we are on the regulatory scale from 1994 and the Bangman report and where we yeah. were then. So what are the, if you go back to access as a driver for regulation, what is the, what is the core thing that you think regulators think about when they think about access? Yeah, well, so I think there has been a shift again. The, the thing that we sometimes forget is, I mean, there was a phony war, if you like, around net neutrality in a sense was a phony war in that, you know, it, uh, the fear was real. The fear was that... Well, it wasn't in the US. It was a phony war in, in, in Europe. Europe. Yeah, and the, and the fear was that providers would end up reducing it. And there were, there were some shots fired. Voice over IP was the, was the sort of skirmish, if I yeah. keep the military analogy, but there was the skirmish where some uh, telecoms operators, again, for, for perfectly sensible commercial reasons, did want to slow down or restrict access to voice over IP services because that would cannibalize their voice telephony. But the market very quickly went, no, we don't like that. And so you still needed regulation. The regulation was, I think, back in the day, was all based on the assumption that um, telecoms operators, I think in particular, would want to shut things down and slow things down uh, and, and restrict access to services that they found in, you know, incompatible with their business model. So you had a whole shift to, towards just like, open, 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 open. I think the shift that's happening now is, is really saying, you know, that there's still some around the infrastructure piece and making sure that um, infrastructure happens. We've got that baseline regulation. We've got net neutrality rules in place. We've got yeah. uh, a wholesale open access to networks type rules in place. But now there's all these questions about the, the sort of services layer on top and what you should be able to access in a particular country. And, and that's driven by a whole host of other concerns. So, so as I say, you've now got a trend towards, I think, almost shutting things down that are unacceptable that I don't think was there. I mean, we think back, you know, the, the front lines were, you know, no government could ever order any internet service provider to block anything. Was, it's, and you had to write, fight really hard. You know, is it okay to block, you know, absolutely outrageous sexual abuse material type sites. So that battle had to be fought. Well, that, you know, it's gone now. And now the battles around different forms of access and, and different players involved, people like Cloudflare, you know, people went back in the day thinking about things like that. But now you've got questions of if the Cloudflare, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a service that provides protection for websites that are under attack. And without that protection from either Cloudflare or a similar provider, the service can become functionally inaccessible. There's no way to get there because it'll it'll get blocked. Um, and so now they're making decisions about access to different sites under huge pressure from governments and others. So it's a whole different you know, debate, I think, from open, 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 open. All of our regulatory concerns are about forcing openness to a debate in which it's saying, well, we want to open some things and close some things. And it's a much more mixed picture now. So one way of, of sort of saying what you said is to say that it used to be a negotiation about access to the internet, but now it's an, a negotiation about access to a certain jurisdiction. Yeah, and particular services in particular jurisdictions. It's a much uh, more sort of granular model, I think, yeah. where the regulators are focused. And that means that it's much more complex as well, right? Because the negotiation of access to the internet, it says you have this big thing, can I have access to it? Now it's a question of how you negotiate access to this fragmented splinternet that you have to sort of also look not just at jurisdictions, but across those jurisdictions, to your point, at markets and services. Yes. And there are sort of non-technical barriers being raised to entry, if you like, so that, you know, the protocols are still there. 
you've got a packet, it's got a valid IP address, it will still go from A to B. Yeah. Uh, that's not changed. The fundamentals are still there. But you've now got all of these potential barriers on top to say, well, look, you could send your packet from A to B, but if you haven't met the regulatory requirements, you shouldn't send your packet from A to B. Uh, and, and then you've got this trend of people saying, but I still insist on if I want to send my packets from A to B, that's up to me. Uh, and that's where these tensions come through that will get played out in the regulatory debate. And so we should, a prediction would be that we'll see even more regulation down this path because access is so complex now that regulators will feel a persistent need to intervene again and again and again across uh, networks, across competition law, across data, all of those devices, app stores, you can imagine all different layers. So pr the prediction is that as a driver, this will generate um, a legislation that will regulate access and sometimes prohibit access as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, uh, and again, one of the big questions is whether it then dives into the technology. So at the moment, I say it's above the technical layer of, of the internet protocols. Um, but there is a world in which, and, and again, Russia is the standard example where Russia has sort of modeled this thing called RUNet, where they cut the Russian internet off from the rest of the world. Uh, and I think they have measures in place where they have local internet service providers sort of geared up to flick the switch and go from the standard global internet uh, infrastructure to a local internet infrastructure as a way of controlling access to to non-russian services and so again i don't know i think that's special at the moment china is special at the moment there's a big question about whether we end up with a the proto the sort of core protocols essentially being adjusted uh, and changed, or whether it's more going to be this sort of layer of law and jurisdiction sitting on top of unchanged core protocols. Yes, and access as a driver of regulation is also affected by a change of the locus of power, where, where power actually resides. If power is in a set of international organizations and standards organizations, as it was you know, in the early internet days, that's one thing. But if power now resides back with the nation states, you should expect to have a very different negotiation of access under new rules from these nation states. Exactly. And, and their concerns are like inevitably inherently parochial. <laughs> and so, you know, t for you to go to them and, and argue, you know, for the greater good of the internet, is like, nah, <laughs> you know, in <laughs> yes. my country, we want X. <laughs> and I don't really care about the internet in another country. Uh, so those arguments, which I think were more powerful in the early days, the greater good of the internet, hands off. And the, and the trend was very much... I think a lot of policymakers accepted this. You know, we need the internet to grow. It was an active driver. We need the internet to grow for our country to be successful. We want to be the cool kids with more internet than everyone else. And so if you internet people say the best way is hands off, we'll be hands off. Mm -hmm. And I just think, you know, that's changed now to, you know, this is the kind of internet we want in our country. Uh, and if you don't like it, or if it's, you know, inappropriate in another country, not our problem. It's a classical Lutvakian point. Edward Lutvak talks about this, where he says that if you push your victory too far, you end up in defeat. Yes. So the cumulative point of victory easily translates to defeat. Yes. So the open access that we all fought for became so open and people had so much access that it became absolutely essential for nation states. And the internet went from being this thing on the side to being uh, the essentially the central nervous systems of the modern economy. And at that point, the negotiation about access changes yes. fundamentally. Yeah, if it hadn't been so successful, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, as I say, like um, 
actually one of the sort of proof points of use is during the lockdowns, the COVID lockdowns, you know, everyone for years have been saying the networks are going to creep with video and stuff. Suddenly the network switches to massive video and largely works. Yeah. And so, but then again, what that says to a policymaker is, oh, look, you know, it's largely worked great, it's delivered, but it shows that my whole economy now is dependent, is dependent on that infrastructure. I'm now going, who are those people, Zoom? Where, where are they based? What's going on? You know, how can I make sure the businesses in my country get a guaranteed level of service? So now I want to start looking at tools that will do that. And that's a whole yeah. new way of thinking. That's interesting. So that's the negotiation around mm. access. The next negotiation is around behavior. That seems yeah. to be trickier. But behavior is really difficult. And again, the sort of history essentially is that I think in the early days, of the internet which is that it was a club of academics who were who were, you know had a certain set of norms. And good and luck behaviors. with negotiating behavior for academics. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> yeah. But I think it was, and it was largely used in that kind of context. And then very quickly, I mean, the early even when they when they first built it, I don't think anyone had imagined that people would abuse it for financial gain. <laughs> and so you end up with the email protocols being completely open. Huge debates about commercial email and people yeah. being pros and out. Yeah. Yeah. But the people who did commercial email were like, again, net. <laughs> <You know>? If <laughs> we can do it, we will do it. Exactly. And, and you're going to have to play whack-a-mole with us and it's going to be too expensive and you're going to end up, you know, uh, and now I think it's what 80% of all emails sent is spam that gets filtered out before we even see it. So so there's a sort of, there was that early community, but that was the, the sort of interesting example of what happens when you take a technology and you spread it to everyone. And now that everyone's on there, you get every type of behavior described as the good, the bad, and the ugly. They all exist on the internet. Uh, and that behavior then becomes really important for governments. The ugly is relative, is the stuff I would say is relatively straightforward. So something like child sexual abuse or, you know, uh, direct threats of violence, things like that. There's a uniform, consistent view that that is ugly. It needs to be behavior that's controlled. But I think that's only a sort of small minority of the stuff that regulators and governments are interested in relatively easy to fix. There's a lot more stuff that is good to some people and bad to others. And there isn't a uniform view. Some people think the same stuff is good and some people think it's bad. The 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 spam emailer, you know, thinks that they're uh, helping people to find products. They want the, av- the targeted advertising person thinks that they're helping people to find useful products. It's a good thing they're doing. Somebody else is going to go, no, no, that that is bad i hate that and so there's a whole bunch of other behaviors that where the judgment as to whether or not they're good or bad is very much in the eye of the beholder and that's the area where regulators are having to move in and where i think it's going to be quite a struggle and then it's tricky because if you you have the good the bad and the ugly uh, it's not as it's as if it's like one third one third one no, third no, no. right the good is probably like 80 percent of the yeah. stuff that's on there is is quite good and helpful and generally drives both our you know, development as a civilization and our economies. Yeah. Then there is perhaps uh, 10% or 15% that's sort of bad where we can't agree on what to do with it. Yeah. And then there's another 5% that's really ugly. And I agree with you, it should be regulated the smithereens, right? So uh, away with that. But it, if you think about what drives regulation, it's interesting that what drives regulation is bad behavior and ugly behavior, never good behavior. Yes, yeah, exactly. And that's one of the issues, again, when you look at, we've worked in the platforms, you're making rules you're kind of, it's interesting, you're, you're making rules in the assumption that people at least are good enough to follow the rules once you've made them. And yet a lot of the bad behavior is, is 
I don't care about your rules. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And so that's a real challenge. Regulators, the working assumption of regulation is there is a bad behavior. I make a regulation. The bad behavior will stop. Yes. And this is, this is, I, I told you, I just recently read a fantastic book by Lorraine Dustin called Rules. That's about the history of rules. And one of the examples she takes, so she really, she has fun with, is she speaks about the different rules in medieval and old cities in Europe about what you could wear. You know, could you wear this fine cloth or could you wear this kind of hat or could you wear these nice shoes? And every city had their own rules about what you could wear, but nobody obeyed them. Yeah. They had like zero compliance with these rules. And one of the reasons for that, Daston suggests, is that these rules were not meant to stop any actual harm. They were meant to look, uh, make the cities look good when yeah. foreigners came there. Right. They wanted to make sure that when foreigners came there, the city wasn't too gaudy, but it didn't look too bad. And it was sort of very much a sort of city advertising regulation that never, ever turned into norms. And... The other example she gives of something that is uh, is a rule that turned into a super strong norm are spelling rules. Yes. So the way we spell, if I if I go to tell you that I think we, you know, if I tell you that I think I have a really good suggestion for how to start to spell uh, English much better, it's just take out all those U's you have in yeah. behavior and labor and just do, you know. The American way. Yes. And yeah. that, that essentially would get me killed. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that has become a super strong norm because that regulates something that's essential to our communication. And it's, it struck me that platforms sort of appear in, in between these two. One that's sort of just for show, one that's sort of solely to make sure we communicate and share this sort of basic informative culture, really. Uh, but platforms are stuck in between. Some of the rules are there to, to make us look good. Some of the rules are there to really enable communication. And it's, it's never clear cut. So negotiating behavior means turning it into real norms that people feel strongly about. And regulation to do that, what, what does the regulator have to I, do? I think that's really difficult because, again, you find this a platform. To, to understand the behavior, you need to understand the motivation. And, and just to take a sort of concrete example from the last few years, some sort of, um, you know, political misinformation, uh, political misinformation, Donald Trump, uh, the Pope endorses Donald Trump, whatever it is. Now, some of the motivation for that content for some people, that's a money making venture. They're the people who used to put out memes saying Johnny Depp is dead. And all they want is someone to click on it. They don't really care. They don't care about Donald Trump. They don't care about the Pope. They care about somebody clicking on it so they can make a fraction of a penny from some dodgy advertising thing. I've got some sort of black hole site full of adverts. So those money people. Then there's uh, uh, the sort of foreign interference stuff. There were, it's evidence. There were people from hired by the Russian government. Actually, the documentary evidence suggests it was the guy who's now running this awful Wagner group who are activist mercenaries in, in Ukraine, attacking Ukraine. Like that guy was running bot farms out of uh, St. Petersburg and those bot farms were deliberately pushing misinformation into the US election. So you've got the second group, foreign uh, interference. Then you've got domestic politicians who, who, as part of their election campaign, they'll do anything to get elected and they'll put out you know, misinformation in order to get elected. And then you've got almost citizens who are true believers who are just having a conversation with each other who are expressing their own view of the world. And they do that by sharing with each other stuff that's wrong. And the challenge you have there from a regulatory point of view is look, the content could be identical. The same piece of content. And just with that one example, you've got four different groups, you know, operating, sort of distributing that content for entirely different motives. 
And what is it that you're then regulating? I mean, the, the first two categories is relatively straightforward. If you say the problem is, you know, advertising spam farms, well, we can regulate because we regulate just to shut those down. That's bad. It's actually bad for the businesses that buy the advertising because it's not real advertising. It's rubbishy advertising. It's sort of bad for everyone. So we can sort of regulate uh, and we can try and cut their money off and make sure they don't access the banks. The foreign interference, we can just say it's criminal. <laughs> We're going to come after you. You know, that would be a logical response. When it's your domestic politicians, ooh, I think it's very different. Like you're, you're going to have to treat them differently. It's going to be part of your election law. Yeah. And when it's your citizens just expressing views, even if they're wrong views or silly views, again, I don't think you want to jump in in the same way. So, so the challenge you've got with a lot of these types of behaviour is like once you, what you see on the platform is an expression of the behaviour. And we're going to talk about content. You'll see the content. Yeah. But when you start looking at the underlying behaviour, you have to recognise the motivation. You have to recognise where people are coming from. And it's really hard to, to craft that in a single regulation. The example I've given, you need different regulations. You need a domestic election law. You need a, a, a financial crimes law, because the spam bot is effectively a form of scamming, uh, scamming up the advertisers. You need a, a domestic elections law to deal with your domestic politicians and probably want to do nothing about your citizens because your free, freedom of speech law says if they want to talk crap, they can talk crap. So you might need four entirely different pieces of regulation uh, uh, to deal with the same type of content. Uh, I think that's the real challenge when you start uh, mixing in content here. I want to stick on the behavior yeah, because yeah. I think the behavior is interesting well, in another way too. And, and beha behavior is interesting because behavior changes under regulation, which means that it is always going to be a driver for regulation because when behavior changes, you want to regulate that new behavior. And then when that changes, you want to regulate whatever it becomes next. So. When you're chasing behavior, you're really what you're really expressing, I always thought, is that you want better citizens. Yes. Yeah. You want to regulate character. You want, but yes. behavior is what you've got. Yeah. So you're regulating behavior and then that changes. So if you're regulating, for example, content uh, to say one thing, what happens is the behavior changes and people move into channels that are end-to-end -end encrypted. You get much more people in Telegram than you get on open platforms. So then suddenly you have to have a discussion about end-to-end -end encrypted platforms and see how you can regulate behavior in those. Yeah. And when you do that, it moves again. When we've seen this again and again and again, that behavior is this malleable thing that changes under regulation. And chasing behavior seems to me to be largely useless, but it is a strong driver of regulation. Yeah. When will we learn? But I think I think it can be. And I think actually you end up with more honest regulation and potentially more viable regulation if you focus on this behavior piece. If you look at the causes rather than the symptoms, which are expressed in these other areas. Just to give you an example where I think it does work, I'm, I'm in, in my parliamentary work at the moment, we've been looking at the UK's Fraud Act right. and how that applies now. You know, the number one crime in the UK is, uh, is fraud and a lot of that committed online. But rather than regulate all the online spaces, at least when you're regulating the behavior, the Fraud Act largely holds up because the Fraud Act says if you do anything with the intent of deceiving other people for financial gain, you've committed a fraud. It's very paraphrasing. So, so we don't need to say it's an online ad or a telegram message or whatever. The behavior we're saying is you go out and the judge will decide whether or not this is the case with the intent of putting out 
false and misleading information in order to to benefit. But you see, I think that's different. This is interesting. I actually don't agree with that because I think that what you're doing there is regulating intent, which is different from behavior. Yeah. If you regulate intent, then I'm with you. You can regulate the intent and the behavior that expresses the intent can change in any which way or shape or form. But if you're regulating behavior, this particular fraud thing that you're doing when you're sending out a a letter saying that you will get a fortune if you just send me a small amount of money to unlock the account, for example. If you were to try to regulate that behavior, you would fail. But regulating intent is slightly different than regulating behavior. I I am wholly in favor of regulating intent, but that, on the other hand, forces the judge into the role where they're a mind reader. Yeah. Well, I do think I think they do a pretty good job. I think they do too. The I think they do too. But maybe, maybe then we're talking. There's sort of two layers. There's a sort of um, primary legislative layer where you're saying this is the intent. This is yeah. the the forms of behaviour that we are mindful of. And then you might have a secondary piece of regulation, which is either going to be in case law, because somebody has taken a case and proven that a particular behaviour does fall foul of the intent law yeah. or preemptively that there is some kind of regulatory instrument that says, you know, and we will consider these kinds of behavior to be in breach of this law. And, and well, this is, and this is a sort of classic component of law as well. Mm. You, you will, you will regulate, you will judge someone differently if they did something with intent or they did it by negligence, for example. Yeah. So there's, there's something there that I think the regulation of intent is actually quite powerful. But what we often end up with uh, on the internet is that we regulate behaviors. We say, you can't use this, you can't use that. And then people use something else and you chase down that behavior. Okay. And yeah. it just changes over time. Yeah. It's it's very much like whack-a-mole. Yeah, and exactly. And to just say the foreign inter- election interference example would be similar. That you know what you want to say is, if somebody in another country is sort of spending money, pushing propaganda, being active in any way in your campaign, that's the intent that you want to criminalize, and you want to say that's yeah. not okay. You don't want to say if you use online ads, because this week is online ads, and next week it's a, a, a crew of people you've got in a warehouse somewhere pushing out messages on WhatsApp or Telegram or whatever. Yeah. And you've only outlawed ads, and now you've got a problem because they're, what they're doing is perfectly legal because you didn't criminalize it. So. But I agree with you that it's a driver for regulation because what happens is that the behavior is what is um, what people pay attention to. Yeah. And the press will write about behavior and somebody says, this is this is just not right. We should regulate this. And then they go for the behavior instead of the intent because the intent seems too broad. And the discussion about regulating intent is actually much harder than regulating behavior. If I say I want to regulate online uh, advertising in elections, that's one thing. I can talk about the behavior very clearly. Yeah. But if I say I want to regulate the intent to subvert an election, wow, we have a much harder discussion now. We need yeah. to talk about what does it mean to subvert an election? How do I prove intent to subvert an election? What's the what's the different things here? That's the regulatory discussion we should be having because the law should at some point be uh, shaped to, to, to be able to do that intent test. And if it's too broad, it shouldn't be a law. Yeah. But I think we, we skirt that and we go for the behavior and that drives regulation massively. So I agree with yeah. it being a driver. I think it's it's one of the yeah. most pernicious ones. Yeah, potentially. So I think we start. So maybe we'll get. We you start with the harm. Yeah. What exactly. is the harm you're trying to prevent? How is the harm expressing itself? And then I think there is a valid. A valid but I get involved in these debates in the legislative world between creating an instrument, a legal instrument that is broad enough to capture future behaviour, yeah. but then may give a lot of discretion to the executive to keep reinterpreting it, versus one that is narrowly defined 
so that you can be confident that the executive or the courts can't you know, run off uh, in a direction you hadn't intended, but that means that it may well become obsolescent very, very quickly. Well, I'm going to and take this exactly. back to Lorraine Dastard again, yeah. because she has this beautiful concept of thick and thin rules. Yes. And uh, behavior regulation is thin. It just looks at the surface of the behavior and tries to understand what that surface looks like. A thick rule is the intent rule, the rule that looks at intent and trusts the court with figuring out if this intent to harm is indeed there or not. Yeah. And I think that's actually preferable, but I, 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 I've often seen us revert back into regulating behavior. Right? Yeah. And, and what happens is that this behavior changes. One of the things that's so fascinating about the internet is the single most massively collaborative environment we built, yeah. and it's also the single most confrontational environment yeah. we built, where people are constantly competing about the tension and so change their behaviors. And if there's something that is completely impossible, it is to make a catalogue of abuse behaviours and outlaw them. Exactly. Because they change and evolve all the time. Because it's generative. Because we created so much accident. It's generative. In, for and the good and the bad. And, and people have an endless resource when it comes to, yeah. to inventing new ways of abusing things. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so we're moving from behaviour to content. Yeah, so even drilling down further. Yeah. So there are just, again, I think the driver is there are some things that governments don't believe that people in their country should be able to see or access. Yeah. And uh, that's often expressed in, in traditional law. And there, there are two sort of framings that you often hear. One is, um, you know, platforms should be publishers. They should be responsible for the content that's on them. Uh, and there are all sorts of challenges around that and why that model, you know, doesn't work, I think, for, for large internet platforms, even user-generated. And as generally platforms. taking, a, a, this is called legal transplants in legal research, taking yeah. a, a sort of concept from one legislation and just hoisting it over to another is, is very much like hoping for luck when I throw a liver at you and that it will translate it, transplant yeah, it's like itself. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's only been the drive and, and, you know, traditional publishers of content have often been pushing in that direction. Yeah. Because again, they, you know, for, if we talk about what's speeding things up and slowing them down, from their point of view, they would like to slow down the growth of user-generated exactly, content yeah. as a competitor to their professionally produced content. Yeah. That's perfectly understandable. And then the other one you get is what's uh, illegal offline should be illegal online. And so this is this notion that, yeah, that there is content or there are things that you cannot say by law in most countries in the world. They vary uh, from country to country. Um, and that should be applied on the internet. And again, there are a host of problems with that. The, the first is, look, uh, you know, as I worked in this space, this idea that it is clear what is illegal offline is is like baloney. Like you just clear or agreed across agreed, jurisdictions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the other thing. Yeah, either across jurisdictions or within a jurisdiction. Yeah. And courts spend, you know, we, some stuff would get taken up. Somebody made some comment on the Facebook platform. It would go to a German court who would spend, you know, weeks and end up with a twenty-page judgment on on that. And I, I had experience. I, went and worked with some French regulators and some French judges, and we would bring pieces of content out from Facebook and go, legal or illegal in France? And they would go, eh, and half of them would say yes, and half of them would say no, because it just it can be really, really difficult. The it's category, a teachable moment, though. I yeah, like yeah. I mean, the category of content that is absolutely clearly illegal is there, but there's a much bigger tail, long tail of content where it's not clear whether it's legal or illegal. And again, the context often sort of matters massively, whether you, when, yeah. when you said something. Uh, and even when you get to that, there's sort of mores and customs and, and a sort of set of value judgments that need to be applied on top. Uh, and so I actually think you know, what we're really 
concerned about in the regulatory space is that the value judgments are being applied by the platforms mm -hmm. rather than by any agent of the state. And so if you look at the regulatory trend, it's essentially, you know, um, inserting a national set of values into the platform decision-making process through Online Safety Bill or Digital Services Act by making the platforms explain to a regulator how they're making their decisions with the, with the obvious sort of corollary to that being that the regulator can say, I don't like the way you're making them if, if they disagree with them. So there's a kind of shift towards inserting that. The first big shift, well, the first sort of um, legislative expression of this was the Network Enforcement Act in Germany, which just explicitly said, hey, platforms, when you're applying your rules in Germany, you've got to apply the German legal standard, not your own, uh, whatever that is. <laughs> but it's you know very explicitly trying to say, you know, these are these are the customs, the practices that we expect you to apply, uh, and they're a different standard from the ones you've got now. And the driver for that is we don't trust you platforms to make those decisions. But pretending that they're you know objective or clear or that there isn't judgment, I think is wrong. And content as a driver for regulation, if we're looking sort of three or four years down the road, the way that that, that would work is then that uh, new kinds of content and all kinds of content uh, will increasingly raise uh, legislators' hackles because they they don't feel that it's being properly dealt with. Or do you think yeah. that content will drive regulation in another way? No, I think it's that. I think so. I think it's just um, that the, you know, this is what causes often the most. Uh, contact to legislators that there is some content on a platform that is outrageous for whatever reason and people are outraged and they go to the, the platform the platform refuses well to do that you can actually work both ways either there's content that's outrageous the platform leaves it up or the platform is seen as taking down innocuous content and they go to the legislature and then the legislator uh, through some kind of regulatory mechanism is seeking to lean on the platform to impose its standards in a different way. So you could you could argue that content uh, has been a driver for regulation for a long time, but you can see a shift in in sort of moving from from the content itself to the producer of the content. So you could you could use another C if you wanted to. You could say that what's sort of going to drive the future of regulation is not so much content as cancellation. Yes. And what you will want to do is to move over to the producer of the content and regulate what it means to cancel someone, to, to use a popular term. Yeah, so, well, it's not even the producer of the content. I think it's the regulation of the intermediary. Right. Because that's the extraordinary thing in all of this is we sort of lost you know, lost sight of, and that actually all started with the copyright stuff, didn't it? It sort of moved. I mean, copyright holders were trying to prosecute the individuals who are distributing copyrighted content, and that didn't work out so well for there anybody. Were, there were many individuals, yes. Yeah, <laughs> so they sort of shifted to... They were also to get customers the, to take another seat, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, to, make, to get the intermediaries to act. And that's that trend is still continuing where the intermediaries... And there are some people saying, you know, that, that the intermediaries should back up. So it's really interesting there's tension in both directions. You know, and really what people are saying is, look, the, the intermediaries should leave alone the people who are like me, who are saying things that I agree with, and the intermediaries should interfere more with the people I don't like who are saying things that I disagree with. I mean, if we're honest, that's a lot yeah. of where the drive comes from. Politics is about reconciling that, and, and it has to come up with a view of, you know, what is the national, and this, here's the challenge, what is the national British view or German view or Swedish view of what we like and don't or don't like? 
and a regulator who's served up with this responsibility is going to have to define that. And I would, cha- I would say not what, but who. Because I yeah. think that content will shift over to yeah. individuals and it will be less speech and more speakers. Yeah. And the conversation that's going to be really interesting and that will drive a lot of regulation is, is at what point uh, is it right to offboard somebody from a platform or to offboard them from generally from internet from the internet yeah. in a country and i think that's that's a discussion that we've been we've been running around when we're talking about content we've sort of this is bad content this is good yeah. content but again we're getting to the individual behind just as we wanted good people when we regulated behavior we want to regulate character here we want to regulate the speaker rather than the speech and, yeah. and that's going to drive regulation into a really interesting set of discussions around you know, when is it right to cancel someone? I think this is interesting in the DSA, for example, that they say that there has to be some kind of complaint process. Yes. But assuming that that's the case, that there's a complaint process, there is actually an outcome where it's completely legitimate to offboard someone. And that's something that's going to end up with the local regulators of the DSA in the European Union, where they're essentially going to say, yes, you were right to cancel that person. Yeah. And there's going to be regulation, I think, evolved, case law evolved, around when somebody does not get access to a platform anymore. And that's that's going to be really interesting to yeah. follow. And that's the stuff that the platforms had to deal with on their own for ages. Uh, and people are clearly unhappy on all sides of those decisions. I mean, just to take again a sort of concrete example, um, Abdullah Ojalan is the leader of the PKK, uh, recognized by most countries in the world, terrorist organization in Turkey. Um, and you know, people get cancelled for posting Abdullah Ojalan content on the platforms. If the platform perceives the posting of content about Ojalan as being in support of the terrorist acts of the PKK, yeah. they would be cancelled. I think most people would say, okay, but what if they're posting the content in order to express a peaceable view? Can you express a peaceable view that you support the Kurdish cause and share a picture of Abdullah Ojalan, or that you support the, the socialist values that Abdullah Ojalan espoused. So there's a whole there's judgment that has to be applied to say, look, when someone is posting content about a cancelled individual, does that then lead to a downstream cancellation of all the people who support that individual? Or, or if not, if we're saying context matters and intent matters, it's not the content on its own that matters. You can't make a single blanket judgment. Then who exercised that judgment? Is it the platform? Is it the courts? Is it the regulator? And I just think there are so many, you know, the majority of the cases that you deal with that cause the most angst for people are in that category. And so your C becomes an A because it's access. Yes. Yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah. the content slowly converges okay. to the access, access. question. Yeah. Who gets access to the public sphere? Who gets access yeah. to these means whereby which we express ourselves. Yeah, what's the conditionality for that access? And I think that's really interesting because I think I think that's sort of a, that, that content has been driving regulation for so far that it's been driving it into a corner where, where we can't just continue to regulate individual pieces of content anymore. We are starting to think we have to regulate who gets to produce content. That's right. And that's, that's a really interesting yeah. driver. Right? And I think just my experience is that I, uh, from policymaking world, is that they think it's much simpler than it is, and it's sort of black and white. There is a piece of content, yeah, yes or no. There is a person, cancel, don't cancel. And yet individuals and content tend to be multifaceted. They can be posted for, shared for all sorts of reasons, and these decisions require judgment. Uh, and it's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. Someone has yeah. to make that decision. But that someone is now changing. And that someone is now shifting, I think. And again, most of the regulation says, look, the 
the regulators, Ofcom in the UK and European Commission, are not going to be in the market for individual user complaints. I think that's correct. But at the same time, once they're already they're doing that work, it's impossible to imagine a scenario in which there's content or types of content that are causing a huge public furore and political debate that they won't have to look at at least thematically. It, yeah. it may not be, you know, Mr. Smith's or Mrs. Jones's individual piece of content, but if a thousand Mr. Smiths and Mrs. Joneses have problems with the same kind of content, is going to find its way onto the agenda of the regulator, and the regulator is going to be put under a lot of pressure to take a view on that class of content. You know, yeah. anti-vax content. What do you think about it, regulator? They can't kind of go, we have no view. <laughs> you know, they're going to have to take a view at, uh, at some point if it's a major source of public concern. Yes. And so that's content. Yes. The next driver is data. Data is getting so interesting because uh, <laughs> I think we've been through sort of various phases. So, so like this is the, the thing that, you know, the internet creates masses of data. Uh, it's done that from the beginning. Uh, and the people who build internet services, and it's not just the commercial ones, but it's people in government, you know, people in, in uh, actually civil society, wherever they are, people, you know, organizations that have techies who build internet services, there is a sort of natural tendency to collect data and want to use it. It's interesting. That's what you do. You well, build individuals systems. do that every day with their phones, yeah, right? Yeah. We're take all, photos, record yeah. things. We yeah. like collecting data and we don't throw it away. We like sort of, so there has, you know, that's our instinct. And I think all the early ways of regulation, the Digital what, data protection rate, uh, directive, as it were, it was back in the day. The 9546 yes. 95, yes. yes. and then sort of rolling forward and the e privacy directive, and now we've got the data protection, general data protection regulation. All of that regulatory trend was towards saying, you know, we want to um, discourage that collection of data. It's all about saying, look, you can collect the data, but you shouldn't. And we're going to regulate it, how you collect it, how you use it, all of that stuff. And, and with a, a real, I think, driver towards saying you shouldn't be doing it. This stuff is bad. Data is bad. It's, you know, and you can collect well, a little it, bit as you possibly you know, can. The European Commission would probably say it was to create an internal market for data, that the original data protection directive, the 9546 EC, was in place because there were different privacy There were ones coming, yes. But, yeah. but I agree with you that the, the sort of the undercurrent was definitely that, um, well, I mean, it's yeah. clear in the minimization principle in the 1980 OECD privacy principles, exactly. you should collect no more data than that which you need for the purpose for which you're collecting it, right? Yeah. That's that's the, that's and, the ethos. Yeah, and the, com and the countries that was like Germany, that you're right, the directive came to, to sort of rationalize the directives that or the national laws that were springing up. But the motivation for creating a national law was that you were worried about the excessive collection of data. By the state. Never, I mean, that's by the, the state, thing. Exactly. It was originally yeah. Yeah. this sort of vertical collection from the state about the from the state about the citizens. But that then translated into the horizontal between uh, corporations and uh, customers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So all of that sort of we've had that trend over the years. And now I'll be bold and say there's a shift where I think it's almost like not not quite the given up, but you know, there's this whole thing that we both hate: data is the new oil. <laughs> but it's almost like now the regulatory shift, there's these sort of new measures coming in at the European level and around the world, which is saying, well, however much we dislike it, lots of people are sitting on big barrels of oil, yeah. and now the regulation is about making sure that you share it and controlling access to that oil. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very, I think, interesting shift. Is the assumption is the data is going to be there, not completely given up. I mean the Data 
protection regulation, all that exists. People have to comply, it's being policed. But there is a working assumption now that there's going to be bucket loads of data around. And the policymaker interest is saying, well, how can I get a piece of that? Or how can I get other certain sectors? To and get and again, generativity, right? This is this is the yeah. stuff that generates productivity growth. I mean, we yeah. had a uh, recently, I, I listened to a really good talk by someone who's in the health space who talked about the European uh, health data space, the sort of the, the common uh, data space for, for health in Europe. And, and if you could unleash that, if you could really sort of use the health data, then I think Europe has better quality longer-term health data than the U.S., than many other regions. So there is there's like this sudden realization that there's an economic impact hiding in the data. Yeah. And, and so that's so interesting. Uh, and then we may now see, I think, a really interesting tension between these two sort of drivers. And you actually see in a lot of the new regulation also in things like the Digital Services Act and others, there, there's lots of measures in there that say, and regulators, researchers, third parties, Digital Markets Act, all this sort of stuff, they've got to have access to data. Uh, and yet you've got a regulation on the statute book that, that it makes organizations paranoid about giving anyone else access to the data if you know they haven't envisaged it when they collected the data, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think we're going to see some really interesting tensions play out where you know, I'm dealing with one at the moment where Researchers want access to platform data on misinformation. Yeah. Who's seen what misinformation, how did it affect them? Often very sensitive because it's about their, their political opinions and how they express themselves politically. And perfectly legitimately, researchers, there would be a public interest in researchers being able to look into that. But from a, just a baseline data protection point of view, it is a platform sharing potentially sensitive political data without consent. Yeah. They, I mean, one model would be to get individual consent, but then if lots of people opt out, then the research is invalid. So it has to be pretty blanket for the research to be interesting with researchers. And who's going to control that? How does that, you know, how do we reconcile the lockdown, the data provision with the you must open the data provision? How do we make those work? And there are ways to cut through it. But it can't be open access. It's got to be very control managed access. And, and there's got to be a whole world of regulation beyond the baseline regulation, the, the principles that would enable that kind of thing to happen. Safely. And this also flows into trade regulation or trade treaties, because that's one part where you want to make sure that there's a flow of data between different countries. So yes. you have the, the equivalence decisions, you have the discussion about the US-European uh, data flows, you have all of those different things that, that really drive uh, regulation. But we would be remiss not to say also that um, a, a ton, perhaps even the majority of the data that's currently used is not personal. Yes. So there's so much data out there that's not personal but still really interesting and and the european union has struggled with this for a long time i mean i think it was back in 2003 that they put in place the public sector information directive yeah. which was this idea that if the state collects information it should share that information openly right. and try to make sure that the information is available as much as possible but that has that has been a little bit of a challenge because many of the agencies that are collecting the data actually sell that data to finance their own agencies yes. so, so it's been a bit of a thing too so there is not just the access to data commercially collected it's actually also access to the data collected by the state and the data that's funded by the state which yeah. leads us into copyright country because if you fund for example health uh, research or other kinds of research increasingly there are calls for that research to be available under open access and that's a very specific 
specific set of data, of course. Yeah. But that data needs needs to be there. Not to mention, I mean, the the the, the sort of long term archiving of data. We have almost nothing in place to make sure that the data that we are now building services on, etc., as a society is there in 100 years. Yes, you're speaking to managers that's been trying to recover floppy disks. Yes, uh, there you go. Very I mean, many years ago. I got, but on crazy. the open data question, it's really, it a really valid point. Is there was a lot of really useful open data, but even there, you know, the data protection piece creeps in. So there is a, there's a database of all the properties in the United Kingdom with their energy performance ratings, really useful data. And it's made available kind of openly, but with some caveats. The concern being, if you knew where somebody lived and you knew their energy rating of their house, you could make assumptions about them and, and you know, vehicle data. So there's a bunch of data sets that, so there's a, there is a debate to be had to say, look, how much risk are we prepared to take? Yeah. You know, and, and there are some people who say, look, if, if there is any possibility I could ever associate this data with an individual and make inferences from it, then you've got to treat it, you've got to shut it no, down. That is, the, that is the legal definition of yeah. personal data, right? It's not just a direct personal data, it's if it can be connected with another data set, which, is, which means that the number 46 is personal data because that can be your shoot size. Yes. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's but really... But there's some judgment in there again. There's, there's there judgment say. and some kind of qualification yeah. in there. I think the other thing that can happen with data as a driver for regulation, that I think is really interesting, is, is, is when uh, a new service is being established, specifically this is true for services that are established locally, like like e-scooters, for mm. example, uh, they can be established and licensed under the condition that they share their yeah. transport mobility data with the community and municipality in order for them to optimize for better urban transport. Exactly. You, you're segueing us nicely into energy. To I am. E right now. I am. That's exactly. We, we should the, do that. Yes. Yeah. Over to the E then. Yeah, yes. the, D. <laughs> the D, which is unresolved. We leave D unresolved. Uh, D is a biggie though, because I think that if yeah. you sort of, I think access is, is number one. And for me, D is number two. Yeah. Just what, what Behavior is hopeless. Yeah. Content is slowly <laughs> going to become access, but right. so that's sort of where I am right yeah. now. But over to Good. energy. Yeah, yes. so energy, so I say, suddenly interest, kind of like a, a long tail effect. But so there is, there's a very immediate sort of set of classic environmental questions, which are, you know, do you regulate for the power usage of data centers and set of standards? Do you regulate to make sure that devices have to be repairable and recyclable? So the, the sort of nuts and bolts of good hygiene of, yeah. of um, uh, uh, sort of, uh, classic environmental recycle, reuse, minimize energy usage. But I think there's also another interesting set of, of um, questions that, that enter now that the internet is ubiquitous. And just to give you a couple of examples, one is that transport example. Like what is the effect of better information and open information about transport modes on people's behavior? Can you see a difference in transport mode use between people who are high information consumers and certain types of information, do they drive better choices in terms of the environment? And you notice, I think uh, Google Maps actually recently has started including some sort of CO2 component to, uh, uh, to the different modes yeah. of transport. When you, so there's and has really actually been driving a, a program of handing data back to municipalities for quite some time. So, so they can yeah. deal with that. So there's a really interesting sort of space there. And then the other one would be to look at the retail sector, which again, Amazon, the big bad Amazon. <laughs> and this is not about Amazon particularly, but here's a question I've asked sometimes. Logistics, yeah. Right. Do, does, do big warehouse models, let's assume it's a big warehouse where all the space is operated by lovely little local businesses, but is the model of you know, taking stuff to a central distribution center and then using electric vans to drop it off at people's houses, is that net 
uh, more energy efficient than a model where people go to shopping areas, and there are lots of social consequences to that. But and where where the retailers bring stuff in, a lot of which will never get sold and will get shipped back out again. Question: I don't have the answer, but I think we're going to start asking those questions, and so that's going to have an impact, uh, certainly in market terms, and then potentially it's going to shift the regulatory debate. The regulatory debate at the moment tends to be, for example, how do we protect retailers mm. from these big warehouse type people? Or how do we protect traditional transport models from these new dialer ride kind of transport models? That could change dramatically if we started to introduce the energy considerations, for example, a regulation that says, you must seek the most energy efficient way to deliver transport or retail or whatever could, could dramatically impact the market. No, you could just imagine a tax structure that reflects energy use in a different way, right? Across yeah. the supply chain. Yes. So you would you sort of do a total sum cost of the supply chain energy use and you could you could use that in your tax structure. It's I think that's really interesting. And I think that the, the question about energy also is interesting because it, it will it will sort of drive how our overall networks are structured too, right? Yes. Yes. Because you can imagine regulation that would say you all need to put the Tesla battery in your home so that we have a much, much more resilient uh, electrical grid. Yes. Yeah. Vehicle, the vehicle to grid technology and the way in, in which we do it. At the moment, regulation often works against I'm the, the, the anecdote makes the best best driver for policy. Yes. But yes. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking with envy that uh, in Germany, you can buy balcony solar panels Ooh. that you fit and you just stick a plug in. And it starts immediately, you know, being a resource that's drawn on instead of the grid. My understanding of the UK, I'm still researching it. The information quality is terrible of trying to research these things. So if yeah. you're a listener who knows, help me here. But um, <laughs> that that sort of thing would be banned. That you know, you have to by regulation have some. Oh, special, because there's no access to the electrical grid. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. There's no there access to go. the electrical yeah, grid. Yeah. You've got to you've got to do something clever to do that. And I'm looking at it going. I've got a flat roof space. Like, yeah. So I think there's going to be a lot of interesting regulation uh, in the energy space uh, that, that will actually maybe there's stuff to learn from the internet space you know it's not the energy space it seems to me the micro space the domestic space is not as generative as the internet it is not it's very uh, much innovation sort of by permission right yeah, so yeah, it's, it's not permissionless it's innovation, innovation no yeah. and, I, I, and i think that's right i also think that you know we should probably posit given where we are in, in time and space that there's another e that will matter which is the economy overall yes because the and, and that might matter in interesting ways i think so if, if you think about moving into what is essentially uh, european and uk and almost like western recession uh, there is going to be some need to get the economy going again. And it's, it's, it's very hard to imagine that the economy that will get going is going to be the economy of the 1970s. It needs to be the economy of the, the 2030s, the next economy. So it will be interesting to see how all the regulation that has accumulated to this point is going to generate all of the entrepreneurship and startups and new companies that we need in order to take us out of the recession. I, I think one of the drivers maybe that I think, if I can say, in the UK, I think we have a current government that's trying to recreate the economy of the 1970s. That's their sort of inspiration, and maybe when that Insights. fails, <laughs> when that fails, we'll, we'll go for the 2030 version. No, so there is. Yeah, you're right. There is. I don't think we're there. Yeah, actually, I think the US, interestingly. Uh, they've been successful for a long time for a good reason. And you look at stuff, you know, I look at otherwise uh, sectors like electric vehicles. 
and their big bull bets and this uh, on electric vehicles and a whole bunch of the stuff that they're doing at the moment, these big investments. You know, I, I hate to say it again, you know, but if we want to, if I, I were looking to say where are we likely to see the new 2030 economic structures emerge, it does feel at the moment it's more likely to be in the US, just yeah. as the internet emerged in the US and I think it's emerged in the US because they are making big bold bets on trying to really shift things and turn the dial. Yeah, I think that's right. So it, it's it's an interesting point. We have we sort of reached peak regulation at the point where we reached bottom economy. Yes. And now we have to figure out how to navigate out of that. But luckily we have the A, B, C, D, E model. Yes. yes, there we go. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Uh, you can find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And we hope to have you with us for the next session.